Hello, and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance. IPA is a trade association and buying group representing 3,700 plus independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at ipagroup.org. In this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Darren Shop. Darren is the co-founder and CEO at Site Labs, which provides all-in-one solutions to automate your entire testing workflow so your pharmacy can offer an efficient and profitable point-of-care testing. Darren has an amazing story. He worked on tropical diseases in Africa for over two decades, and that experience taught him how important testing is to stop the spread of diseases like COVID-19. Darren, welcome to the IPA podcast. I'm happy to have you today. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be on. So, Darren, you have a unique background. Can you speak a bit about your professional background and the type of work you've done on tropical diseases? Sure. And I know it's not very typical, but most of the last 25 years, I've spent living or working overseas and primarily in Africa. We lived there as a family for about 10 years and then had a number of jobs everywhere from the West Africa coast all the way to Myanmar and just about every place in between. And a lot of that was spent doing community development or humanitarian work. So Imagine famine response in the Horn of Africa. You may have heard about things that were going on in in Somalia and Kenya and Uganda, and then refugee camps in South Sudan, working with neglected diseases, as you mentioned, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in Myanmar, in Nepal. You may remember the earthquakes in Nepal and some of the disasters that happened after that. And most of the last 10 years, I spent overseeing research and innovation in neglected tropical diseases. And those are diseases that we don't hear about very much in the U.S. So think about leprosy or leishmaniasis or Beruli ulcer. These are like nasty diseases that often don't get media attention here, but can be very prevalent overseas. And that's what I was focused Darren, on. Darren, what was your motivation for doing this type of work? We see these kind of things on TV all the time, but most people can't imagine actually going to a different country to work on these dangerous diseases like Ebola and others. What was your motivation for doing it? What? I, I thought everybody grew up saying, oh, I <laughs> want to work in leprosy. No, what I knew that I wanted to do was to live and work overseas and help people who didn't have great access, whether it was to food or shelter or water. And in my career path, what I found is that there were these groups of people who were affected by some really nasty diseases who, just because they couldn't have a good access to a diagnostic, really had terrible health outcomes in their life or sometimes died from it. That was really this motivation is there's people who are invisible to many of us and they didn't have great access. And I loved finding a way to help and to try and bring better health outcomes in those spaces. You mentioned you worked on diseases like Ebola and leprosy. And, you know, when I hear those words, the first thing I think of is it's pretty freaky. It's scary. (laughs) It's really scary. But you went there to work on those disease states because you want to help people. But most of us don't really understand what Ebola is, what leprosy is, what they truly are. Could you give us an idea 
what are these diseases truly? What do they do? And how do they spread? Yeah, well, let me let me speak to the human part first, because that's super real. In fact, when I first looked at getting into the space of a disease like leprosy and whether to work for that type of organization, honestly, I was kind of grossed out. Like, really? First of all, does leprosy still exist? I had no idea there was a quarter of a million new cases every year around the world. And how could that happen? And we don't know about it. And then I part of what really broke my heart is what I saw happening to in, even in me, I was disgusted. And I thought, how must that be for somebody who's affected when people around them feel that same type of reaction? So instead of pushing me away, it made me want to lean in and really work in a disease like that, where people felt really marginalized and pushed away from their community. So that's, I just wanted to say that from a human side, like, it is not unusual at all to feel either scared or freaked out like that is part of the human condition and understandably, but man, it can have a big impact on the people who are affected. So just to something about the disease, leprosy is interesting because it has been around It's one of the oldest diseases known to humankind. It has this enormous incubation period, which makes it very invisible. So anywhere from two to 20 years, it can be in your system and you don't even know it. And during that time, you can also be infectious. So imagine how subversive that is, that you could be walking around and 10 years ago, you would never remember where in the world that I picked this up. Fortunately for humankind, 95% roughly of the world is either going to be naturally immune to it, or our immune system is going to fight it off. It's actually really hard to get. Doesn't mean it's not possible. There's about 150 new cases a year in the U.S. alone. And it's a, it's a bacteria. So there are antibiotics that you can take. If you catch it early, then it's not a problem. You can overcome it. It doesn't have a long-term effect. The problem is, is the people who are not caught early, that's when it can be debilitating and have all of the consequences, the disfigurement, getting pushed away from your community and cast out that can be terrible for the person and the family. So the key is catching it early. And it's a disease of poverty as well. Like when your immune system's down, you don't get enough nutrition, enough food. That's when you're more susceptible to diseases like leprosy and a lot of other diseases too. Ebola is very different. You know, you're talking about a disease that is incredibly scary because the life expectancy is low once you catch it. What is unique about Ebola as compared to COVID, for example, is that you're not infectious until you start to have symptoms. So even though it has an incubation period of two to 20 days, roughly, in that period where before you have symptoms, you're not going to be passing it on. And it doesn't transmit by water droplets in the air. So it's not an, an aerosol type disease. It is from bodily fluids. And that's made it a little easier to contain. It's still not easy at all, but it's a, it's a frightening one. I was in Liberia during the Ebola outbreak, kind of the first big outbreak we've had recently, and we lost a staff member. It was, it was a very, very scary time, but it is something that is containable. And fortunately, now we also have some vaccines that are effective against certain strains. What are the chances for survival for somebody who has Ebola? Yeah, it used to be terrible. I mean, it was probably maybe 20% or so. And right now, I 
think that that has gone upward with better care and some of the new treatments. I haven't looked recently, but I'm, I'm guessing it's over 50%. I've always been curious. We hear about breakouts of these diseases and outbreaks in Africa. Why haven't we seen a disease like Ebola come to the United States? You would think, you know, with all these international flights, it should come over here kind of the way COVID did. Why haven't we seen something like that come over here? Yeah, that's a great question. And Ebola, it's really complex as far as how it is transmitted in a community. It tends to be in very remote environments. So that has an advantage. It, it tends not to be in capital cities. Although you may have seen the news recently that in the capital of Uganda, in Kampala, they had their first recorded death. And that was somebody who came from the rural area. And even though there were checkpoints to check for people with symptoms, he was able to avoid those and eventually died in the hospital. So the WHO and the country of Uganda, anytime this happens, they institute a protocol where they do all kinds of contact tracing to try and break transmission and, and catch those transmission pathways. It's kind of an unsung hero story. All of the health workers in that chain who are trying to catch it early and make sure that it doesn't get carried internationally whether between countries where the borders there are more porous, but you don't want somebody getting on a flight, obviously, or things like that that could transmit it a lot more widely. Um, so they're, I think they're doing a great job. Ebola is one example where fortunately somebody would have to have symptoms before they're infectious. And so it's often easier to catch them in a, at a screening checkpoint. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that other countries have a process in place to stop these diseases from coming over to other countries via airplane flights. I honestly thought it was just uh, luck. I'm glad there that- There may be some of that. Maybe too. maybe there's some <laughs> luck. I thought maybe it was the Atlantic Ocean and the distance, but you know, it's a good thing to know that there are other countries that are dealing with it who have plans in place to prevent that from traveling across their borders. But some of the things that you've said kind of stuck with me. You mentioned the words- testing, vaccination. And here in the United States, we've gotten used to these terms over the last few years. We've learned a lot about vaccines. We've learned a lot about testing for diseases. And we've also learned various mitigation efforts to try to prevent them from spreading, whether it's masking, hand washing, things of that nature. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear what you think. How would you compare the experience that we've had here in the United States with COVID-19 compared to other pandemic diseases and outbreaks that you experienced in Africa? Mm. Boy, that's a great question. I think the first thing that struck me as we started doing our own mitigation measures is that it makes complete sense. So let me just take you back to Liberia during the Ebola crisis, you were very concerned about transmission, obviously, of a, of a highly contagious, deadly disease. They came, we came up with new, when I say we, I'm, I'm talking about general population. It wasn't our team or anything, but there was a new way to shake hands where you just use elbows. Mm -hmm. You may have seen like the Ebola handshake. And that changed a lot of cultural norms because people were used to being extremely warm in greetings and embraces and just realized some things had to change. It wasn't pleasant, didn't make some people happy. 
There were rumors that was this created by some outside mechanism or force and was it sorcery or witchcraft? And there were a lot of things that you just had to battle against and battle through together to say, you know, no, this is real and we have to change the way we do life in order to break transmission. So if you fast forward and to the COVID outbreak and think those same discussions, all right, what's the vector? Can we identify what the transmission pathways are and how we, how we interrupt it? And you may remember early on, it was like, how long does the virus stay on a, a desk? You know, my wife's a school teacher, so it was a, it was a big thing. Like, how often do you have to wipe down and sanitize? And do you single mask? And then do you double mask? And it, it, was, it was a scary time. But it, to me, those were all conversations that were very practical. And just imagine if you had said five years ago, we want to get all the third graders through fifth graders to wear masks every day in school. We would have all said, there's no way that's going to happen. We know what kids are like, won't be able to do it. What amazed me, as challenging as our response was, and it wasn't perfect, there was a lot of hiccups in it, but it's amazing how well we adapted overall. And I think about that snapshot of what it was like seeing my wife's school and those little children doing their best to kind of keep their masks on and hold them up and wipe down their supplies and, and things like that. I, I just saw a lot of things that were, that were really encouraging in the process. We didn't do it perfect. There's a lot of stuff that was difficult, but we did adapt. And so the second thing, just my observation is I wish there had been more transparency about all we don't know. Anybody who's worked in diseases for a long time knows that there's an enormous amount of space that is just unknown and unknowable. You know, we, we still have not figured out the exact method of transmission for leprosy. Even Ebola, there's questions about exactly how that works. So it doesn't matter what disease we're facing. There's so many unknowns. And it's, sometimes it's better just to say that as an authority figure and say, we're taking our best guess. We think this is the right pathway and go from there. But, you know, I'm not a politician. I, would, I didn't have that responsibility. And, and I can only imagine how difficult that was to, to both come across as authoritative, to get people to act, and yet also have the right amount of transparency. And there were definitely people who did not want to admit that we didn't know yes. everything about yes. COVID-19. Yeah. And Something you said is really interesting is that we still don't know everything about COVID-19, but diseases like Ebola and leprosy, we still don't know everything about those diseases. And they've been around for decades. Completely, yeah. So the science can change. The knowledge about these disease states can change. And what we thought worked a few months ago or a year ago may be different today. Mm, and yeah. I could definitely see why it's difficult for people to maybe try to accept these changes because you hear one thing one day right. and then another day you hear something else. And, you know, you're probably true that we don't actually want to know how much we don't know. So on our team, previously, we had molecular biologists and we were doing some research at a particle accelerator in the UK, trying to map the leprosy bacteria and all the protein folds, if you will, basically get a 3D model of the bacteria 
and then predict the drug interactions with the bacteria based on the 3D model. And what you find is that the deeper expertise somebody has in a field, the more that they recognize they don't know. Like we're just taking baby steps sometimes into the molecular level and the, the genetic impact of some of what we do with certain drugs. But we don't really like, in fact, I don't really want to know that. I just want to know if I take time and all my headache goes away, sure. that's good enough for me. And <laughs> don't tell me anymore. Let me ask you this, you know, the conversation we're having of all these disease states, it seems that the key factor is prevention mm. and that deals with testing and vaccination. And we've had a lot of experience with that in the last few years with COVID-19. Not the truth. Now, pharmacies have been on the front lines. They've been doing the COVID tests and the vaccinations. And I have a feeling we're going to experience more of this in the future. I don't think COVID-19 is the last of what we've seen of these types of diseases. Where do you see pharmacy going to the future with vaccination testing? So we don't have a crystal ball, right? I wish we did. We do feel it's a bit like, maybe you remember what Wayne Gretzky used to say, that what made him great is he would skate to where the puck's going to be and not where it is. And mm -hmm. so where we see the puck going in the next five to 10 years is this aha moment that's been created by pharmacies engaging in testing is only going to be accelerated because it's an amazing extension of the healthcare network. And I think the independent pharmacy, that network across the U.S. has been underappreciated and underutilized in the health system. And so we think that's going to go to that next level, which will allow pharmacists to practice at the top of their license and allow pharmacies to have a greater role in the healthcare landscape, because there's no reason they can't do some of this testing, just as they've already shown that they can do. And I think we've done something great in that process. So you combine that with what the projections on declining number of physicians in the U.S. and where that's headed. And we've got to prevent those healthcare shortages and the healthcare desert uh, that could emerge. So Darren, could you tell me how can pharmacies be better utilized to handle diseases like COVID-19 in the future? Mm. If I go back to an experience that we had overseas, we tried to set up remote testing stations. And so think about the, a place like Ghana or in Liberia or Democratic Republic of the Congo or Congo Brazzaville, where there's extensive remote areas. What we wanted was an advanced surveillance network for diseases. And how do we catch diseases as early as possible in the community before they become a problem? So as site labs, when we zoom out and look at the community pharmacy network across the U.S., we know the facts like the CDC says over 50% are considered in socially vulnerable areas. But practically what it is, is a very, very powerful early warning network, in my opinion. And so the more that pharmacies are empowered to be that front line of healthcare, because it really is the front line in so many communities, we're going to be so much better off, no matter what the disease, no matter what the challenges that comes forward. When, 
they're just right at the front lines. And that's where we need to be when we think of both the diagnostic space and kind of the early warning system, if we think of it that way. Your experience in working with tropical diseases led you to forming site labs. Could you tell us a bit about site labs and how site labs works with pharmacies on testing? Yeah, it was born out of that experience with the power of diagnostics. I remember very well what it was like to see a young woman, a young mama come in with small kids into a clinic in a remote area and dying of cerebral malaria that could have prevented with just a simple diagnostic. So I knew that there was this potential in the U.S. to really extend our diagnostic network And I think that the community pharmacies are just an amazing place to see that happen. So we wanted to be the easy button to allow pharmacies to get into point of care testing, whether it's uh, over-the-counter test and a different variety, lab-based testing. And we recognize as we talked to hundreds of pharmacies that even though there was a desire to get into testing, many didn't know how to go about it in a simple, easy way. So that's why we created Site Labs to be the easy button, just to have the test kits, a simple software solution, and then create that network that allows them to do the testing. Could you also tell us a little bit about how the science of testing has evolved and changed over the years? Oh, man, I tell you what, COVID has accelerated innovation. We were working over, over the last 10 years this goal of moving molecular testing from the lab out into the field, that's been a dream, is how do you get better and better sensitivity down to a molecular level, instead of it being a $30,000 machine in a high complexity lab, is there any way to move it out to the periphery? So what happened during COVID is all of that was accelerated until now, we have tests on our site that are molecular tests you can hold in the palm of your hand, and they're powered by two AA batteries. It's unbelievable. Like five years ago, we could not have dreamed that this was possible. And now it's already happened. So they got fast-tracked through the FDA process, and it has just been game-changing innovation. And we're just beginning to see the power of that. Imagine just having that genetic-level power in the palm of your hand is, is pretty, pretty cool. It really is amazing. You know, I bought some of these at home tests yeah. and it, the way you describe it is an amazing way. It kind of reminds me of the industrial revolution where mm. we've, it was just this giant leap in technology. And now we have COVID-19 with this other huge leap in testing. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Darren, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. I think the work that you've done in Africa is to be commended. And I think the work that you're doing here now on behalf of pharmacy, expanding testing opportunities for pharmacies and for patients is to be commended as well. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Anthony. Pleasure. To learn more about Darren and SiteLabs, go to sitelabsglobal.com. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the President and CEO, John Giampolo, with music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.